Um, would you please turn with me now to your study outline? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are joining us today and glad that you are with us as now we continue the story. And as Pastor Brian mentioned, if you're a visitor in that gift bag, you'll find this coupon and take it to the Resource Center. And we'd love to give you a free copy of the story, which is basically a Bible reading program that takes you through the Bible chronologically, uh, reading like a story. This is a perfect time to jump in. We're just starting with the ministry of Jesus here today. Basically, July, it's really a summer overview of the New Testament. July being an overview of the life of Jesus, and then August being an overview after the resurrection of Jesus of the early church. And so it's kind of a New Testament uh, flying on the treetops, the forest rather than the trees going through the New Testament here uh, to get the gist of what God is saying in his story, and would really love to join you and have you come back with us as well next Sunday. Now, the title of today's study is is the beginning all over again. And we start today by looking where Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now here we have a manifestation of the Trinity. We have the voice from the Father from heaven. We have Jesus being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. So here is the Trinity all together in this story, a manifestation of the Trinity for us. At Jesus' baptism, the Bible says the sky ripped open and a voice declared from heaven, this is my son whom I love. But baptism is for sinners, yet the son of God was baptized. Why is it? Why did Jesus get baptized? Well, we believe it's because he wanted to identify with us in our sinfulness. And also, by the symbolism of his baptism, that is, whenever we're baptized, it's like we're being buried with Jesus in baptism, buried and then resurrected to new life. And in a way, this was foreshadowing. Uh, This was symbolic of how he would rescue us from our sins. So he's identifying with us in our sin and then showing the means by which he would save us from our sin. Uh, let me read for you. It's not in the study outline, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. You may want to write that down in your study outline. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that? Uh, he identifies with us in our sin, but then we identify with him in his death and resurrection to be able to be rescued from our sin. Let me read it again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, J. Vernon McGee is just a great Bible teacher, and I love what he says about this. There was sin on him, but there was no sin in him. My sin was put on him, not in him. Let me repeat that. There was sin on him, but there was no sin in him. My sin was put on him, not in him. In him. And so that's why he said uh, to John the Baptist, it is appropriate uh, that we do this as I identify with humanity in their sinfulness, but then as I show the means by my death and resurrection by which they will be rescued 
uh, from their sin. And let me just mention again that if you've never been baptized, this is what Jesus commanded. This is the way we go public uh, with our faith in Christ. Or maybe you'd like to be rededicated. You've gone through some things and you just feel kind of like people renew their wedding vows. You'd like to renew uh, your, your baptism and, and to have that uh, sense of, God, I'm rededicating myself to you. Or do it with somebody that you're marrying, a husband and wife together, or a couple engaged couple together. There, there are different reasons. But the main reason is when you first come to Christ, this is the way you show that publicly. And again, if I could just mention, next Sunday at our starting point class, we'll be sharing a little bit about what the Bible teaches about baptism. We'll answer uh, some of your questions about it. I would encourage you, if you've never done that, if Jesus wanted to set the example by doing it, surely we should follow him in that by doing that. Uh, I told this story, I think just a couple of months ago, so forgive me as I'm retelling it, but I found the picture that went with the story. I just stumbled upon it the other day, and so I wanted to tell this story again. When Kimberly and I were leading a trip to Israel years ago with Dennis and Marilyn Endert, our executive pastor and his wife, and we had a good group of people from our church that went over to Israel, and so it's, it's a thing that many people love to do to kind of renew, rededicate themselves, even if they've been baptized before, either be baptized for the first time or rededicate themselves by being baptized in the Jordan River. And so we had about 40 people or so that were being baptized, a long line, and as I looked down the line, as I was baptizing everybody in our group, I see somebody I didn't recognize, this young girl there talking to my wife, Kimberly. Kimberly's in the middle, and the young girl there is on the right. And uh, I, I did not recognize her and came up, and Kimberly explained to me the story that this girl had been sharing with her. This young girl was from Finland. And Finland is a very secularized country. It is hard to connect with Christians in Finland. But somehow, either from reading the Bible herself or connecting with some Christians there, she had come to commit her life to Christ, to be a follower of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit told her about baptism, go to Israel, stand by the Jordan River, and somebody will come along who will baptize you. And so she went up to Kimberly, and she says, do you think that guy would baptize me right there? And she said, I think he will. And so, uh, so Kimberly talked to her the whole line down to make sure she understood what it meant uh, to be a follower of Christ, to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, what baptism meant. And so I had the chance to baptize this girl that I'd never met before right there on the spot at the Jordan River. Because of the beauty of the internet, we were able to keep touch with her and connection with her even when she went back to her country of, of Finland. Well, now the next thing we look at is right after the baptism, now Jesus goes to the wilderness and Jesus confronts the devil, or the devil confronts Jesus uh, in the wilderness. Jesus reenacts the temptation at the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's why we call this study the beginning all over again. Next page of your study outline. He reenacts it, what the temptation of Adam and Eve, and this time he comes out victorious in the rematch. Jesus, each time he was tempted, referred to God and to his word. Now, this is very important, practical help to us in dealing with temptation. Every time he deals with temptation, he refers to God and to the word of God. And that is our hope in facing down temptation. We have got to be saturated in God's word. That's why it's so important every day to be in God's word. 
uh, to be in a, in a life group where you study the Bible and go down deeper, to be in a group like Bible Study Fellowship or, or one of the other groups that does in-depth study of the Bible, to be here in church as much as possible, to study God's Word, but especially day by day. That's why the story, I think, has been helpful to so many people because you've had that mapped out chapter by week by week. And so sometimes what people do is they read the entire chapter every day for six or seven days. Or sometimes you'll read a page or two every day and get through the chapter. And I hope that if you've never had that habit before, that maybe this developed in you the habit of reading the Bible every day. And that you'll, after the story is done at the end of the summer, you'll continue that habit. I have a Bible reading program. It is so important that we be just saturated in God's Word. Because what will happen is, is then when the temptation comes, it is, it is supernatural. I, I have found this in my own life to be just amazing how when you face that temptation, instantly the scripture will come into your mind. But you've got to have planted it there for it to come out, the Holy Spirit to bring it out when you face that temptation. But it is just amazing how when you face that situation, instantly a part of God's word will come to your mind. And, if, and that's what Jesus had to do. And if Jesus had to do that, then a 100,000 times more do we need. We only stand against temptation as we stand based on God's word. I want to give you kind of a, a silly illustration, but it, it really works for me. Uh, I showed you a picture a couple of weeks ago about our Millie, our, our St. Bernard. And so Floyd the boxer got jealous because I had shown the picture of his sister in church and I had not shown his picture. So here's a picture of Floyd the boxer, and we love this dog. This is just a great, great dog. And let's go to another picture there. There he is uh, sleeping with his sister, Rebecca. Okay. And this dog is just a great dog. Kimberly just adores this dog. I, I call it her therapist. You know, she just loves this dog and has been such a, a blessing to her. But he has one terrible flaw. You know, and isn't that the way it is with your animals? Don't you find that? You really love them, but they usually have like one thing that's kind of off. And this dog, Floyd, barks incessantly at squirrels. Even after the squirrels are long gone. I mean, the squirrels taunt him. They know this. This is recreation for them. And they taunt him. And then the squirrel will run off and he'll bark at the same spot in the tree for hours afterwards, just incessantly barking at where the squirrel was. And, and, and I was so worried. I said, Kimberly, our neighbors are going to get a petition to drive us out of the neighborhood. This is going to be bad relations with our neighbor. We have got to do something. And we tried everything. And we were just desperate. But I went to Petco uh, the other day. And Lisa Gregola, who's a part of the choir, part of our church family, she works there at Petco. I said, Lisa, you got to help me on this. So she help me to find the greatest invention ever made. The person that did this ought to get the Nobel Prize, I'm telling you. Okay, what you do is you, you turn this on, and it's got several different levels to it, and it's called an outdoor bark control. And you put it in your backyard. Okay, just show you how this works. It, it should be green right now. But on the count of three, everybody go woof, woof. Ready? One, two, three, Woof, woof, okay? So, you, well, it's closed, it's closed. There's the red light right there that says that it heard your woof. Now, let me read you from the manual what this does. The outdoor bark control emits an ultrasonic sound. The ultrasonic sound can be heard by dogs, but is silent to humans. Startled by the high-pitched sound that is safe and effective, the dog should stop barking as it will associate its bark with the unpleasant noise. 
this thing worked great. It's unbelievable that when he barks in the tree and we put it out there, it, it emits this sound. It's not hurting him in any way. You animal rights people, don't, don't, don't email me, okay? It's perfectly safe. It's perfectly safe. And, and so it emits this sound, and it kind of like startles him, like, nope, don't want to go there. Don't want to go there. Don't want to go there. And, and I, I thought to myself, this is exactly like God's word in temptation, the more we saturate ourselves with it, as soon as we're tempted to bark, or as soon as we bark, instantly, I mean, it's amazing. The more you're in God's word, the more you'll be watching a, a movie and God's name is taken in vain, and it'll just, it'll hurt. It, you'll wince on it. Or you'll see something you shouldn't be looking at, and you'll just, oh, no, 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 no. Shouldn't do that. Or, or you'll start to display your anger and, and rip into somebody. And, oh, you know what? And it's God's word that emits the thing that stops us in our tracks when we face temptation. Now, let me just read you. I love the end of this. And this is one of those, Kimberly and I call them, how dumb do they think we are statements in these manuals. You know, you know what these are, okay? I like this one. Note, if the dog is deaf, he may not react to the outdoor bar control. <laughs> Don't you love those, you know? Put them in there. So, if the dog is deaf or hearing impaired, he may not react to the outdoor breath. But you know, there's an illustration in that as well. When we are hardened towards God's word, when we are deaf to God's word, when we've turned a dead ear to it, then we don't respond and we go headlong into temptation because we have not honed our senses uh, to be able to be. And, and the more we're saturated in God's word, the more sensitized we become so that we pick up more and more as, uh, as life goes on. Now, as the second Adam, Jesus won the rematch with the devil. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So it is written, the first Adam became a, life, a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. Does anybody want to say amen to that? He won the rematch. Okay, Adam and Eve lost the match, but the new Adam, Jesus, won the rematch. Now, the Bible makes it plain that the origin of evil is with the devil. Now, this Greek word and what it means for devil is very interesting. Let's camp on that for a couple of minutes. Devil is from the word diabolos, which comes from a verb which means to divide. And, and that is so powerful. His very name means he is the divider. The devil, Satan, is not a myth but a very real being who wants to divide us from God and from one another. His main mission is to divide people from God and to divide people from each other. That is absolutely counter to our purpose as Purpose Church. What is our purpose? Uh, it's connecting people with God and then connecting people with each other. Uh, finding purpose in Christ, in community, for the journey. That's what we're about. And his, our direct opponent in this is Diabolos, who is the great divider. Fascinating thing. And, and maybe it's not meaningful. It's within the margin of error. But I saw a poll a couple of years ago that said that more Americans believe in Satan than believe in God. Now, both were very high. It was something like 92% believe in God and 95% believe in Satan. And like I said, it may be within the margin of error, and it may mean that just most Americans believe in Satan and in God. But, I, you know, I thought about it, though, and maybe not. It's, when you look at what's going on in the world, let me ask you a question. Is it easy to believe that there's a Satan? 
when you look at the atrocities, when you look at the evil that people are capable of, that just seems beyond human ability to be that evil, it, people find it easy to believe that there is a diabolos, that there is a, a Satan, a great divider. And here's the practical truth. Remember who your real enemy is. And this is very helpful to remember. Because Diabolos wants to stay in the background and make us think that we're each other's enemy. He's the real enemy. Are you having a problem? Let me ask you, who's the person in your life right now that you're having the biggest problem with? Who is the person in your life that it is most difficult to get along with? That person is not the enemy. They are a victim of the enemy. In marriage, boy, Satan loves to use this. He, he loves to make husbands and wives think that the other is the enemy. He wants to make us think that our wife or that our husband, they're the real They are not the enemy. Diabolos, the divider, is the enemy. And remember that. That, that precious person that you married and that you made your wedding vows to. That person you fell in love with. That person that you know you love, they are not the enemy. Diablos has made you think that they're the enemy. This is true in your family life. Boy, many have somebody in their extended family that is just very difficult to deal with. That person in your family is not the enemy. They are a victim of the enemy. That, that person in church that you find difficult, we are not the enemy. We are victims of uh, the enemy. Uh, somebody handed me this from the Truth Project uh, after the 8.30 service. Don't treat your opponents as enemies, but instead as prisoners of war who need rescuing. Isn't that good? Uh, the, don't treat your opponents as enemies, but instead they're prisoners of war who need rescuing. Even Al-Qaeda is not our enemy. Now, please don't get me wrong. There's a place for a nation to have a firm defense and to deal with violence against our citizens uh, in a strong way. And so, absolutely, that is the role of government and the role of our country. But remember, at the personal level, Al-Qaeda is not our enemy. They are victims of our enemy. Diabolos has made them hate us and tempts us to hate them. Think of Palestine and Israel. The atrocity of three Israeli teens kidnapped and left for dead in the desert and then, apparently, in retaliation, a Palestinian 15-year-old burned to death in retaliation. And Diabolos leads people to do those things. And then he just steps back and watches it all burn to the ground. Diabolos is our enemy. Uh, our opponents are not our enemy. They are, they are uh, people, in, prisoners of war, that are in need of search and rescue that's why Jesus came. That's what he calls us to do as well. Now, Jesus was also confronted by the devil through the religious leaders of the day. Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all. Now, the passage we read in the story this week was from uh, Mark. 
And uh, this passage is from Luke. This is not one of the ones that we read. We read the same story from the perspective of Mark. And Mark adds in one more little detail. He looked around at them all in anger. He was angry that they couldn't see the plight of this dear man and instead just thought of their man-made laws, their human-made laws. That was more important to them than the plight of this poor person suffering in that way. He looked around at them all in anger and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. 6,000 Pharisees and Sadducees, jealous of Jesus' impact on people, conspired to have him killed. Now just a little, little bit of a tangent here on this, or a little bit of application on this. They were jealous of his success. And can I just say a little thing that's concerned me? Is that, especially in the day of the internet, uh, you will find ministries criticizing other ministries. And please don't get me wrong. There is a place for Christians to call each other out when we diverge from the truth. Absolutely, there's a place to do that. But my suspicion is that some of it is that, and a big part of it is just plain old jealousy. You hardly ever see a big ministry criticize a smaller ministry. You probably you hardly ever see a, a larger, more successful church rip into a smaller less successful church. It's almost always the other way around. When I was growing up, it was all the attacks were against Billy Graham. And part of it were legitimate concerns, but a big part of it was just simple, plain old jealousy. Just jealous of how God was using somebody. Jealous of how successful someone was. And we'll see this so many times when I'm in a situation and there's more energy in that situation than it merits. I think to myself, I think there's jealousy going on there. And I've got biblical support for that. The Bible says that jealousy is the universal motive. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. The Bible says the universal motive is, is jealousy. And so whenever you see one Christian criticizing another Christian, pause for a moment and just ask the question, how much of this is legitimate concern and how much of this is just jealousy uh, going on? And take it with a grain of salt. And I, for one, like to give fellow Christians the benefit of the doubt. You will have to prove to me allegations against you as my brother or sister of Christ. I will not take them quickly and run with them. And I will analyze the motives behind it. And sometimes there is a legitimate concern. But often, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees with Jesus, it is, it is uh, encapsulated in, in, in jealousy. And we've got to be so careful not to get into that trap. Uh, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. The religious leaders objected, and Jesus stared them down with the anger of God because their hearts were hardened. Nicodemus was a notable exception to the hostile religious leaders. So you have these hostile religious leaders, and a notable exception to this is this man, um, Nicodemus. And, and he's, he's not willing to come in broad daylight. He comes at night, but Jesus doesn't rebuke him for coming at night. And he asks questions, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him for having questions. He says, come to me with your questions. Come to me 
under cover of darkness. Maybe you're worried about what your friends will think. Maybe you're worried about the price that you'll pay for following Christ. And that's okay. If you're a Nicodemus here and you have not yet made a commitment to Christ, I want to lead you in a moment in what I call a Nicodemus prayer. Where you say, God, I am willing to be made willing. Lord, I am not yet at the point where I can follow, I, I, I can, I'm willing to follow after you. But I'm open to you revealing yourself to me. I'm open to having my questions answered. I am willing to be made willing. And if you're a Nicodemus, uh, I, I want you to identify with him. And I want you to, uh, I want to lead you in a prayer that is a preliminary prayer to committing your life to Christ. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. And maybe you identify with Nicodemus. You're either watching online or you're listening later on with podcasts or you're here this morning. And, and you're attracted to Jesus, but you're not ready to make that step yet. And like Nicodemus, maybe you come under cover of darkness and you're concerned about um, what people are going to say and what your friends or family will do. Maybe you have questions But right now, I want you to pray with me this prayer. God, if you're there, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you give me, if not full answers, because sometimes I may not get all the answers until I'm with you in heaven, but could you give me enough evidence that I can make that decision to follow you so that like Nicodemus, when Jesus died on the cross, he finally came out in broad daylight and said, I am a follower of Christ. Lord, I am willing to be made willing. Would you please help me as I look to you for answers and for you to reveal yourself to me? And I pray this in Jesus' name. And now maybe you're here today and you are ready to cross that line. You say, I don't need any more questions answered. I don't need anything more. I want to take that step today. I want to get this thing done because I don't know when my life is going to end and I don't know when Christ is going to come back. So I want to get it done right here, right now. Would you pray silently with me as I pray out loud? Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. I receive you right here, right now. July 6, 2014 will be my Independence Day, my freedom from sin because of your death and resurrection. And you identifying with me and my sin, I now identify with you in your death and resurrection. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we have a gift we would love to give to you. Uh, If you prayed the Nicodemus prayer or if you prayed the prayer to commit your life to Christ, it's called Unwrap Your Gift. They're available either at the south end of the lobby, at the guest center, or the north end of the lobby. No obligation, no pressure whatsoever. If you'd like to talk to somebody, there'll be somebody there. But if you just want to take this, 
uh, to look it over as a resource and helping you grow in your walk with God, we would just love to give this as a gift from our church family to you. And the other thing about praying that prayer to receive Christ is that now you are welcome to share the Lord's Supper. Basically, the Lord's Supper is just outwardly saying, I want to follow Jesus if you've made an inward decision to follow him. It's like Nicodemus on the day that Jesus was crucified. He finally came out in broad daylight, and that's what we do through baptism. That's what we do when we take the cup and the bread. We are saying outwardly that inwardly, I have decided to cross the line and be a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or you did it today, then you're very welcome uh, to share the Lord's Supper with us. So let's take just a moment and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.